All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Before we get started, we'd like to let you know that the Uncommon Gem podcast is an adult content show, meaning we may go into explicit detail or say some explicit words when talking about today's subjects. We also like to inform you that we're not paid or sponsored by any of the donations or charities in the episode. We simply just are giving it a shout out and hopefully spreading the word on some good causes. Thanks again for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey, hey, what is up again, everyone? We are back. Lucky number 13. Yay, we did it. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening. Thank y'all for tuning in. My name is Kevin Estevez. I'm the host of the Uncommon Gem Podcast. That's the show you're listening to now. I'm very glad and very happy we're doing more different things. It was cool to have Nick on. It was cool to have Eddie on. But yeah, we're, we're going to keep rocking the gems. We're going to keep discovering what people want to talk about. And that's, that's where we're heading with the gems. Let's, let's keep it going, y'all. Today, I'm super, super excited about this guest. Really honored to... Over the past summer, when the process started, you just go to the streets and you meet so many cool characters. This one individual is definitely one of those people. He is a writer, actor, model, abolitionist, stand-up comedian, and some of y'all may know him as Plantain Poppy, so definitely give him a shout-out here and there. Please welcome Luis Galilei. What up, yo? Very, very happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you for having on the show, man. How you doing? How you been? Not bad, you know? I mean, I feel like... You know, I got I got allergies right now, so that's really pissing me off. But, you know, coming out of some waves of uh, depression and sadness from like things that are going on in the world. But obviously, you know, we all have our personal stuff that we're dealing with. That's just been influencing my art a bit. So trying to use that, learn from it, grow through it. It's beautiful, man. I That's that's what art's all about. I think doing the show, I definitely learned because we've had like various artists that is always the expression it's always like the true this is me this is what i'm doing and you can't find that unless you go through the good and the bad so i I think this is you know i always say that renaissance is on the horizon but i really do think so because a lot of people have gone through the worst of it yeah it's gonna spark some creativity for sure i think so hey i want to talk about you man because you know i like i said i've only seen you from afar from this protest angle but let's let's let the people know about you a little bit yeah sure i mean i'm um peruvian 27 years old, uh, from New York, from here, but I grew up more in Westchester area, like Mount Vernon, Yonkers, White Plains. When I was younger, I got in trouble for doing stupid, like little kid gang stuff and graffiti. And then my mom moved me out to Peekskill, but I always went to school in White Plains. And then I've been in Harlem for the last four or five years now. But yeah, no, I have a day job in PR. When I graduated and started to work, I was like, oh, I don't know if this corporate nine to five life is is what I'm going for. Started doing comedy. Comedy led me to basically everything else that I do now. COVID hit and it just really amplified and empowered my sense of connection to humanity and then spirituality and then activism really came strong on the ground and mutual aid and, and different things, being an abolitionist and a student of abolition. That period of time was definitely like that spark plug. Everyone definitely realized a lot that they needed to do more. And I like that you said humanity because, you know, just over this past summer, I've talked to so many people that 
some part of me never wanted to talk to you before for some reason, or I was just so busy in my own personal life, you know? But now that we had that break where we actually did have to be there for one another, I think it was really humane, like you said, very humanity-driven, and it, it was a great learning experience. Especially seeing, like, your crew and everyone out on the streets, especially seeing that, because y'all are so inclusive and so diverse. And every, yeah. everyone has gotten a chance to speak. Everyone has gotten a chance to say their truths, which I really respect. Everything that you do, right, always leads up to the moment that you're at, right? Whether it's negative, positive, or you don't perceive it to be either. And like what my formal training in PR and then holding comedy shows and hosting and, and curating lineups, when I met my group, these group of community grassroots organizers, I just was able to use that training and then like see the, the expertise that each added and with diversity at the head of my thoughts, I'd be like, okay, like I would try and help form what, when we have a protest about this or an action about this, like who should speak? Let's make sure we're not speaking one person for 30 minutes because then people check out because we want everyone that attends to walk away with some piece of education or exposure to a learned experience. And we want them to walk away with as much of it as possible. So that was something that, that we were doing. And yeah, I mean, COVID itself, like COVID really let us know how fragile humanity is and it stopped capitalism like nothing has before. And we were forced to wake up. Right. And it, it's very unfortunate that it took the murder of another black man for that to happen. But I think, you know, because of the combined circumstances, a lot of people are now thinking about humanity at the center versus money, weapons, capitalistic gain, investments or stuff like that. I mean, there's still, you know, a bunch of people made money over, over the pandemic, but there, there, there's a change happening. Of course. And it's, it's movements like this, it's movements and people like this that will definitely spark that change. I mean, a lot of the times in your crews, like in group speeches, you're always saying like abolition is tearing down the system. You know, we cannot reform the system yeah. because it is not for us. It's not meant to be there for right. us which I think always rings that bell so loudly because very clearly we're still, you know, in 2021, almost May, and people are still dying. Transgender people are still dying. All types right. of colored races are still dying. And we're just like in the thick of it all, really. Yeah, I think like if, you're, if your fight is for humanity, if your fight is for spirituality, if your fight has anything to do with inter interdependence, you will eventually get to abolition especially when it comes to the liberation of the marginalized people and the people that have been pushed from the center as much as possible, which are black trans women, black women, black men, black non-binary, the whole black community. So like you get there because as you said, abolition is not reform. Abolition is the creation of new practices, right? And we've been doing shit this way in, the, in this country for hundreds of years and ain't shit changed. Like people are not... There's no less people dying, regardless of what race you are. More people over-index like on, um, in Black communities, especially transgender women. But abolition is about the dismantling of many harmful systems. And we always have to remember that it does boil all the way down to white supremacist, patriarchy, capital, like that imperialistic colonization too, the colonialism. Because if we don't recognize that, then people don't see why, like, you know, why do police have to be abolished? Like how, what is safety? Who's going to, who are you going to call? But it's not just the entity of police. It's like the thought of what safety is. And it's the thought of like how we enforce safety. 
why is it this militaristic way that the cop is also thinking the same way our dads think or even our moms think conditioned by this extensive and strong need for dominance and that dominance is respect and that love is discipline versus care. So we, we have to go through that. But like, I, I always, when people start talking about reform, I don't, I don't push them aside right away. Cause I'm like, you're getting there. You're getting there. You'll understand because watch, we voted again. Biden's in office. We got the New York elections coming up. More people are going to vote than usual. And then the population is going to continue to see that the more you vote, the more you do, is not necessarily getting you the, the, the things. So now more progressive people will then come in and be like, yeah, I'm less of a reformist. I'm more of like, let's re- radically reallocate resources. And then you're like, okay, this is, this is starting to show. It's an unfortunate thing, but like our country is going to progress at, at a very slow rate because it's been doing so well in the harmful ways that it, it had been founded on. I feel one thing that totally like rang true this whole past summer was seeing how so many people on the streets would just be a community. Meaning, I've seen simple acts of literally people just handing out water bottles. I've seen simple acts of people literally applying first aid to a random stranger they saw fall down because a cop shoved them. But, you know, it's uh, yeah. it's really beautiful because that to me kind of shows the change that y'all are trying to lead that it is not this crazy radicalized idea that a lot of people put it really is just this community basis we're not trying to police the community we're trying to be a community yeah but at the same time like i would even challenge that like we have to we have to remember what what this country has deemed radical you know what i'm saying at one point the abolition of slavery was radical that was that was crazy for people back then what we're not going to have slaves that's crazy now when you want to transform the world into one that centers the most marginalized, that centers rehabilitation, that centers having just the foundation of living a good life, that centers, you know, mental health, and that that centers other forms of community justice that would not make us, you know, one of the countries with the most incarcerated black and brown people. That is radical because it's completely against the system. So what you're talking about in a, in a, in a very zoomed in way, in the summer, it was beautiful, you know, like, we were out there in the face of, of police that had that they were scared, too. Let's not forget the police were scared of us, too, because they didn't know what to do. Most of them are just following orders. And, you know, you got people just handing out waters like you were saying, handing out sunscreen. You know, you got people that you may have seen one or two or three times, but you trusted them. And when you came into harm's way, you locked arms with them. That That is that sense of the fight against this toxic individualism and the acceptance of care and interdependence is pretty radical because it tells us that like at that point no one was like oh who's next to me is that person going to get like a promotion over me or oh who's next to me are they going to get the the last pair of jordans that come out and am i going to get asked out on sneakers again like we weren't thinking about that shit we were just like yeah we're on the streets we know that it feels right and then you know we have to also give credit to us being on lockdown right you know what i mean like a lot of people didn't have shit to do so people were like okay I opened my eyes and also I'm going to go out and protest every day, which was New York in the summer because we were out there like every day. One of the main reasons why I did want to ask you on the show, too, is because I have a lot of friends that live in these West Coast states. So they don't see just how powerful this movement is when it's bigger cities, you know, because the summer in New York, it was literally thousands, thousands of people just out there on the streets. And of course, you know, as as time dwindled on, it died down. But y'all are still out there literally every single day doing something, doing some action or preparing for another action. 
you just don't see that in places out where most of my friends live or most places where they're just not that active. So that I really am glad that you're here to like add that perspective because you, you've seen the totality of good and totality of bad that this kind of this protest scene can be, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's also important to acknowledge, like, even though the numbers have dwindled and other places don't see it as much, it's also because like you have to acknowledge that in New York, we are privileged. We are privileged because one, we have a lot of people. Two, transportation is very easy for us, whether like we we hate being on the A train or whatever. It's very easy for us to get from like, you know, whether it is an hour train ride, you know, from the Bronx downtown, you could you could get to a protest. And because of the proximity that we're at, and also our police aren't allowed to like shoot tear gas at us. There's a lot more cameras on when it comes to New York. So the, the police have gotten in trouble quicker here. And it's a huge PR nightmare, which happened during the Biden protests, like during the election protests, when you have a militarized force out there and you have 300 police officers and you have 60 protesters. And then the world is like, yo, what's going on in the most liberal city in the world, <laughs> allegedly? Yeah. And other spots, you know, they have like the, the military comes out like, you know, right. you get a, a bunch of like we have the NYPD, which is like its own small army. But other places, what they'll do is they got sheriff's departments where they'll bring in six, seven, eight different sheriff's departments. And these dudes are action junkies. So they're like, yes, like mount up, gear up. Hell yeah. They can shoot tear gas. They can pepper spray. They can hit. They can do all that stuff. And then you're just like in the middle of a road, you know, even if you go right outside like Los Angeles, you know, it's not as populated. They can get away with more shit. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, you're totally yeah. right. Like it definitely has become super militarized. And as, as one of the main reasons going to this protest, I was glad about was that learning the budgeting because y'all, y'all say it all the time. Like these people spend millions upon millions of dollars for tanks, guns, you name it, but they won't give a school a chance. They won't build a better housing unit in a brown or Latin community area. Yeah. And also one of the biggest things that we got to remember is that it's not only that they don't choose to send the money, it's that we have ignored it. Right. You know, like I grew up in hoods, like that was just how it was. You know what I'm saying? It was never a thought like, why isn't it better here? It was always like, I got to go to where it's better. So that's when we get conditioned, especially within our communities of make it out, make money, get out, not make money and stay and fight to make it better. Those things like, yeah, their, their budgets are, are big and, and they don't really give a fuck about black and brown people. But also we didn't either. Right. Right. Cause we were just, we were just like, all right, like, you know, we'll help here. We'll help there. But I guess when it comes to spending millions, I don't know why we don't have it. But now with this awakening and more people being conscious about local budgets and the amount of ridiculous money that goes into police prisons and not enough money that goes into the DOE. Hey, folks, we ran into a quick audio issue with this part of the episode. So unfortunately, we had a quick drop in the Internet, but we're right back at it. Here's the rest of the episode. Okay, well, that happened. All right. Why? <laughs> Why 2K21? All right. I heard DOE was like last thing I heard. I don't know if you want to keep diving into that or. That, that was my, that was my last thing. Luis, one thing I really liked that you did on Instagram and actually in general, when you were speaking out in the streets is that you really made sure that the individuality of a person was really out in the open. So you yourself are very prominent in speaking of 
both your masculine side and your feminine side. I mean, you had mentioned to me privately, but I think we can both being raised by women definitely puts you in tune to that feminine side. You mind like just speaking on that a little bit? So the birth and, and this will tie it all around when we get to the, the uncommon gem spot, but the birth of my embracing of the femme was understanding and being a student of mindfulness and spirituality where you learn that it is a balance of both. It is not a dominance of one over the other or the acceptance of one over the other. It is a balance of both. And being raised by, by strictly my mother, my aunt, and not having a male influence in my life or a father-like figure until I was in my teens, my mother empowered me to be emotional. She was like, when you feel, you feel. Like my grandfather would be like, Los hombres no lloran. Like, and I was mad little. I was five years old. Like, of course, kids are going to cry. But like that sort of stuff, when my mom would empower me to do that, I then grew into just being more open with my emotions. But when I got around other men that were conditioned more around like the, the definitions of what masculinity is to, especially men that are Latinx, Black, Asian, even like the more Southern white men too, like it's just patriarchy in general, that's not accepted. And that's very femme. That's very girl. You're a bitch. You're a pussy. Like stop being a bit. And and for me, it would always hurt the most when it had to do with, with like a relationship with the woman where I would get left on the side or whatever. And I would be very emotional. And all my friends would look at me, but not only look at me and be like, why are you being a bitch? They would literally be like, yo, why do you feel that much? My friends would then ask me like legitimately, like how I felt that much and like that, that was not manlike. And then when I spoke to other older men around me that I had at that time, it was, you just got to get over it. You're the So even from an early age, I was put in this box of femininity that is really toxic because having emotions and feelings, it's not femininity. That's, that's humanity. Yeah, it's just humanity, right? But imagine that we've we've applied everything that's that is feminine is weak, and then we've applied a strength, which is feeling and embracing what you're what you're going through as a weakness and something that is not man, mm-hmm. right? So that affected me at an early age, even in high school, to a point where like I had gone through this crazy breakup and I was just feeling too much. I mean, obviously I, I had my own traumas, my own childhood traumas that I've been through that obviously added. And it wasn't because of an attraction to men, but I was like, I must be gay. Mm. Because I was so, I was like, how can I, no one else around me, none of these guys are as hurt as me when this happens. No one expresses themselves. I'm always calling my boys or I get along with girls better, like just being friends. And I was like, I must be gay. I like had that thought. It didn't turn out to be like that. But like now, now I I love that contrast of me because I'm like a very masculine presenting dude. Like out there, I got tank top, tattoos, beard out, (laughs) bandana. And then you talk to me and they're like, oh, this dude is so calm. Right. And you would think that like I've gotten different perceptions of me. But I love the contrast of me showing my femininity and in my energy, it doesn't take away from anything. It only adds. Mm -hmm. And I feel sexy. I feel pretty. I want to feel pretty. Right. I want to feel like I love feminine body movements and being able to just like feel like I'm one of the girls almost. Right. But like, I know I'm not. 
You know what I mean? But it's it's this thing. If you get into spirituality, if you get into into humanity, if you get into the unlearning, you're eventually going to get into the dismantling of this concept of gender. Because it's really harmful to, to young boys and girls to put these squares around them. Right. Me, like growing up, like especially, like all my uncles would shame me and my cousin if we were seen skipping. Like would shame us if we were seen just watching Powerpuff Girls. Like all this stuff. And we're like, so fucked up fun this is dope you know like this is what we're trying to have fun and i don't know like i also i grew up in a dominican background so i also can you know relate to some of it where you have to be the set stone bracket you know you can't escape anything we're outside this bracket and that to me is just so so out of tune because that just means like you're you're only going to allow a certain amount of information in and that's just not acceptable for like a family member to do this is not mm-hmm. especially with all the pressure that comes with you know, I can only authentically speak to, to the Latin side, but, you know, I've had a lot of minority friends. Not only should you be this emotionless, disciplined, strong, tough, but somehow loving, some, but you also have to be the, the financial pillar of your family. Like, you, you must be the breadwinner. You must be that backbone financially. And what happens to a generation that doesn't get employed as much? Or what happens to a generation of men that are creatives that don't get paid a lot up top? And then now you are not only feeling more, which is anti-masculine to them, not only, and now you don't have a traditional job, which is anti-masculine to them, but now you also don't have that much money. And they're like, my son's a failure. And we don't talk about how dudes have the biggest daddy issues in the world. So it's like, it's only about girls and their daddy issues. Now we got daddy issues, bad ones too. Oh boy. I don't know if you ever seen the movie Ad Astra. I haven't. Brad, Brad Pitt goes off into space to find his father in space. This is a, d- a dumb thing, right? It's not a good movie, but because it was about daddy issues, I literally was just like hurt to the core. I was like, I've been there. I know that feeling. I know that feeling of disattachment to your father figure or whoever it may be. Like, what I've learned from my past is that I cannot be that for either my nephews or my own children, if I ever have them, you know, I cannot be that. I have to let them in. I have to let them in. You got to let them in. And you got to also, you got to be authentic with what you unlearned. Be admitting that like, you know, before I used to be just like a lot of my friends now, like handle shit in fights. If it gets down to a disagreement that we can't talk through, let's go around the corner, fight, and then dap it up after. Love you, love me. That's so fucked up. We become violent as a rational reaction, and then the world justifies it. More harm than good, in either way, in either way. Yeah. Yeah, and then when it comes to, like, the, the Instagram stuff, like, I'm not ashamed to say that, like, I, I just feel great doing it. It feels authentic to me. Right. It, feels, it feels a little uncomfortable, too. And I like to dive into that. Us being comedians, I think we can relate to, like, that stage fright, you know? But, like... We love to make people laugh, though. You know what I mean? That's what we want to do. That's the end goal. So, of course, you know, it, anything that you feel uncomfortable but you like doing, guess what? That means you're, you're doing it because you like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> comedians, we're like the biggest analysts of the world. That's why a lot of stuff like, you know, be controversial or they're like, why is comedy so uncensored? Is because we're showing the real-time analysis of what's going on. And a lot of times, it's problematic. And a lot of times it has some growth to be had. But if we can't bring out 
the funny in things and we can't bring that out, then humanity almost itself is lost. Like if we start taking ourselves so seriously to the point that no one can say anything and no one can be wrong, we just going to start killing each other. Open up your ears, yeah. folks. Open up your heart. Luis, we got to talk to you about the comedy because obviously it's what you've been up to. You've even done it sometimes after you're done with the protest, right? You've literally gone to shows after protesting. That's incredible. Yes. So please tell the people where they can check you out. Tell us about your comedy. So you can check me out on Instagram, L-U-I-S-G-A-L-I-L-E-I. I also post funny videos up there. Um, yeah, stand-up comedy is my one and true love before any of the other things that I do. The funny story, I'll let everyone know that, yes, there'd be times that I'd be done with an action and then I got to run to a comedy show because we were doing comedy shows out in the parks in New York City because there was no inside, nothing. But one time I got arrested right before a comedy show. It was at Times Square. We were doing an abolish ice march because of what came out about the Atlanta detention centers where they were sterilizing women. And we are about to set off and I'm on my bike and we get into the crosswalk and 30, 40 police officers come each side of us. There was only six of us. They fucked us up. Like I was banged up. And then after that, my group decided to, in solidarity, after that attack, they decided to sit on the road as a show of civil disobedience. And they were also arrested. So that day, there was 80 people arrested and they were all taken to central bookings. And I was one of the first people there. So I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was like, all right, like, damn, yo, I'm, you've had me here for three hours already. No one started on my paperwork. And then I see more just lines of people coming in. I'm like, yo, what the fuck y'all doing? How did y'all got more people arrested? You know, it takes them five hours just to fill out one piece of paper. Right. <laughs> so then we had 50 dudes in the main holding cell. And I told them, I was like, damn, yo, I'm missing my comedy show. And one dude was like, yo, do it here. And I ended up standing up on a bench and I did a stand-up comedy. So I did like 30 minutes in jail. Hell yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> Every time I, I, I told a joke, one of the women in the femme presenting cell would get released. And it was right before my punchline. So they would get released and everyone would see them and they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, no, listen to me, listen to me. And then like mid jokes, like the toilet would flush. I would be saying a joke and you could hear someone peeing behind me. And I'm like, this is some raw shit in here. This is raw as fuck. What a venue. And what a venue. What a venue. And believe it or not, I got some great feedback from one of the people there. And he was like, yo, this joke was pretty misogynist. And I was like, hmm, was it? But then I was like, you know what? And this is going to go into like how I do my comedy now. And I was like, let me reflect for a second. Because for comedy, I'm like, am I saying something or am I just being cheap? Right. And when I thought about it, I was like, I was being cheap right there. So I was like, you know what? Let me say that you're right. Thank you for calling me out. This is what I'm doing. And he acknowledged. He was like, yo, as a comedian, it must be hard to try and like make sure you're not offending people. And I'm like, yeah, you, I mean, someone's going to get offended by anything. But I got feedback and I was like, OK, you know, I'm, I'm going to switch that one up. And it, and it ended up making it funnier. So, but my comedy has changed. My comedy has changed because I care about so much more things. So I had a huge, huge tough time with that. And my comedy has changed a lot because now I care about a lot of things. So as an artist of any medium, you want that to shine through. 
but I had a real, real big conflict with that in my writing process because I was never really trying to say something. I was giving you my Latin experience and my Peruvian experience going to college in the Midwest and all that stuff, but I wasn't giving you a little bit more to think about. And since in the summer I used to speak at the protests and there was a lot of organizing going on, I became an activist who was trying to make activism funny. And that's just not how it is. You got to be a comedian making funny things activism or like have the message. So I went through that whole journey of being like, shit, I'm not funny no more. Like I suck. I don't know how to write. I was doing old jokes that I didn't believe in anymore. But now I've gotten to a point where I've learned how to make like I have jokes that stem from the protests. I have jokes that stem from the learning that I did within my own like white Latinxness. So it's evolved, but it's just been such a journey as an artist. And I assume a lot of people that consider themselves artists during these times are like, yeah, man, like your shit changes. Everyone has to go through that transformation, but I'm so glad you went through that specific one because that's a great way of looking at it. You know, like, like, as you said, taking a cheap joke could be easy, but you really do want to work for your craft. You really want to make sure that that joke, not only like, is it funny, but it may be eye-opening, maybe like perspective changing. Yeah. You want. And not everything has to be eye-opening in comedy because life at times isn't eye-opening. Like I can make a funny joke about finding out that I'm white Latin, but I can also make a joke about taking a shit. Like it's the same thing. But like in that joke about like the low bar stuff, are you perpetuating stuff though? That's the thing. Like, am I perpetuating the disrespect and the sexualization of women? Maybe. If I'm not cool with that, then I should edit. Right. I think all artists are conscious of what they do. So if you're consciously being like, nah, I'm cool with perpetuating the sexualization of like a certain ethnic group. Sure, you do that, but just know, the good comedians will never go out of style because they will adapt with the world because at the end of the day, our currency is laughter. Exactly. And if you're talking mad shit and nobody's laughing, you're not a comedian no more. You're, you're, you're just at a rally. So then if you want laughs, you got to grow with the world. You hear that, folks? Any artist, really, any artist that's listening to this, just take that risk, take that chance, because obviously, you know, you're going you're gonna to stick with what you're familiar with, but always try out something new because that's the risk that you take. It's a very transformative journey. It's supposed to be a journey. Hell yeah. So folks, please check out Luis, L-U-I-S-G-A-L-I-L-E-I. But also check out Give Me a Break Comedy if you're in New York. That's every Wednesday, right? Yes, yes. every Wednesday at the Bowery Electric, 8.30, come through. Diverse liners. Always a good laughs, and it's just a good time. We, we need comedy now more than ever, and I'm glad stand-up comedy's back in action. Yes, it is. So, folks, we always make sure we take time to call out an act of service or a donation that can help some people out in the world. Luis was so gracious enough to bring one onto the show. Luis, you mind telling the people what we're going to talk about? Yes. So this donation aspect is the Venmo of my smaller team now. We are a community of abolitionists. So the Venmo is BLA Community. It actually stands for a Brave Loving Abolitionist Community. And what this specific uh, Venmo is for, it is to gather funds to pair Black activists and marginalized people with Black or POC therapists. There's been a lot of trauma. A lot of the people that have volunteered for or have been out on the streets with or have canvassed with, have done mutual aid, these people go through a lot of trauma 
because of the proximity that they have to it or their own. And one of the biggest things that we want to fight for as abolitionists and people that want to bring resources in, into our communities and every community is making mental health a right, a need, an essential, because there are so many things that we are not equipped to just deal with ourselves and therapy and mental health resources are so essential. So basically to get in, even into finer details, we're obviously working with now people that we know very well that really need the help and have consented into the help. We will provide them with 12 sessions with a mental health specialist or therapist or psychiatrist. We usually are able to negotiate the rates with the therapist because of it being a bit of a donation on their side too. They aren't charging their full rate. As we know, like mental health can get very expensive. After that, we will continue to work with them to see if we can keep them going or, or see how we can set up a, a fund for them to keep themselves going. But usually with that beginning journey in mental health in two and a half months, we'll sell you on it. Because right now the world has done a great job of not selling us on it. It's so funny how like the world can sell us on mindfulness through yoga because it's such a merchandisable thing but they're not selling us through therapy and actual growth. But we, we try and introduce that, but predominantly people of color because our cultures have stigmatized mental health a lot, especially in men. But yeah, that, that's what that Venmo is. B-L-A community, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y. Uh, uh, and that's what that fund is for. Please check it out, folks. And please also, you know, what Luis is saying is that it's so true, how it's so stigmatizing, especially for men. But maybe a lot of people don't know this, but for a therapist, it's usually a white woman leading that kind of role. It almost always is a white woman. So for them to try yeah. to go out and pair them with a black therapist is so beyond special because, it, look, we got we to respect what it is. It's the perspective that they can truly share, the knowledge that they can truly understand. So I really appreciate that this effort's out here and also that you're really making sure you're taking care of your people because it takes a toll, especially seeing what goes on in the world, seeing what happens in the world. I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine pain and suffering. So you want to make sure that people have the chance to talk to these people and get some help. Mental health care should be a goddamn right. It really should. But yeah, I, I really do want to also appreciate y'all because I, I think we should give y'all your flowers for how much you actually protect the people on the streets. I don't think people really recognize that how much actual work y'all put into it. So I do want to make sure that y'all get that love too. Give, give them the flowers now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I'll extend that love to the rest of the safety community out there that provides a sense of safety and insulation and the opportunity for people to express themselves, whether it is at a protest, a rally, a mutual aid function. It is the, it is the reimagining of what safety looks like. It's not depending on these oppressive systems and these systemically racist, conditioned, toxic systems that are policing. So we try our best. There are so many people that are in the community that consent into this sort of stuff and just know that like, if you're in New York and, and you wanna one day get on your bike and, and try it out, or we have a lot of foot marshals as well, or people that provide safety for other sorts of events, so it's come out. There is no criteria besides being human. All right, Luis, we now get to the point of the show that I enjoy the most. What is your uncommon gem for today's episode? Okay, my uncommon gem is a name drop that no one ever expects me to say. And it's the movie titled The Baba Duke. His name is Mr. Baba Duke. 
And this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Ba 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 duk duk duk. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. It is one of so I'm I'm a big I'm a big like horror movie dude. Mm. I love horror movies. I used to watch them with my aunt in the dark and in her apartment in Yonkers since I was little. And the Baba Duke is my uncommon gem because it was the spark to my spiritual journey. Yeah, the Baba Duke. When the first time I saw it, I saw it with my cousin and his ex girlfriend, and we were sitting on the couch and we didn't have no AC in our apartment. I was just sweating my ass off. And I, we watched the movie and we got to the end and the end went down. And I was like, oh, my God, I need to accept my demons. I need to stop trying to fight them, avoid them. I need to stop trying to give them positive spins. I need to stop trying to make a light of them. No, I need to just accept them. I need to feed them as, as the movie showed that was basically the spark of that for me. I mean, I love that takeaway because that's the kind of takeaway I had from it too. Like, it's not this monster, it's her actual guilt over the trauma that happened, over the situation that happened. And I, I cannot agree more with that sentiment. I feel so often in life, we just beat each other up for just the silliest, smallest things we just hold inside. And yeah. it's just terrible to do for your mental health. It's just terrible to do for yourself. Well, I think one of the powerful things of the movie after you look at it is the, and obviously spoilers for whoever hasn't watched it, but like the amount of resentment that she had for her son. Yes. And it was a taste of what generational trauma is and the handing down of it, not just through your genes, because we know that we can hand that down just by, you know, having a, a child but the act of handing down what you haven't dealt with to another life. And it really made me think about my personal relationships and why they were failing so much. And it was because my demons were so big. You know, my Baba Duke was so in my face because I wasn't dealing with him. I wasn't dealing with me. I wasn't fully accepting me if I don't accept my Baba Duke. To me, that relationship with her son and how, she never admitted that she blamed him, mm -hmm. but blamed herself, but it manifested in him. And when you think about that power to manifest the, the power of the projection of what you ignore of your demons, that's scary. And, and it really hit me. It really hit me. Yeah, I like that you said it that way, because yes, this is a horror movie, but it's not like gory horror. It's literally like psychological like mirror psychological horror kind of stuff going on and i think that really plays to the element of what they're trying to go for it also takes place in a house with a bunch of locked doors like that's a very big motive and that's it, it could not explain your brain better you know there's a bunch of locked doors in a house like but i love that that mental fuckery because that really just goes to show the kind of we, we, we've all kind of had a night where we're just like what the fuck did i just see no i'm just i'm just tripping Sometimes it is like that. You ignore that thing for so long, you really start pushing it off on other people instead of just facing it. Yeah, to me, the, the revolutionary part for myself and what sparked my spiritual journey. And after that, I started to read the, the Bhagavad Gita. I started to read The Power of Now. 
and, and I started this spiritual journey with uh, one of my friends who had been doing it for a while. So he became like my spiritual advisor. But to me, the biggest part was the end when the monster, the Baba Duke, comes out. No, no, no. We 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 see them. We see them. They're they're making breakfast or something. And now the mother and the son are getting along, and the son looks at the mother and goes like, "Is it time?" Because now the trauma is both of theirs because it's no longer not his just because she acknowledged it. She already put it so much on her son that it's now his too. And she goes, yes, it's time. And she gets a plate of food. She's it's like a dog bowl or something. And she goes down to her basement and it's dumb dark. And that represents her demon. And she just places the bowl. But the super gangster shit was that she places the bowl and just takes one step back. She doesn't turn around right. and the Baba just goes, grabs it. And you're like, oh, shit. And then it eats. And then she looks at him and she goes, all right. I'm going to go back up now. And it's catering that time to your trauma, to your demons, to the unlearning. And it lives with you. It's not going to leave you. It's not going to leave you. You can't. And even if it does get really small, one day it'll get a little bit bigger because we are growing at different rates. Exactly. And after that, I was like, this movie is so hard body. Yes. I think it's one of those like, because we are now in this era where horror movies are kind of ignoring that cliche, like dummy gory stuff and kind of going more into family drama, more into the drama, more into the psychosis of people. Mm-hmm. And right. I think that really speaks to it because I think one thing that's so true about this movie is her emotions are just on point every single time. Like she's just literally just like at the verge of breaking down pretty much at every yeah. single thing. And they play it off as that she's not getting enough sleep, but really what it is is that she's just playing off this Baba Duke thing. And I, mm-hmm. I think one thing that I really appreciate about it was I like when movies make promises. So there's a point in the movie where the kid says, I'll protect you if you protect me. And then they both shake hands. They both like make that promise. Yeah. I've got the day off tomorrow. Maybe we could do something. Huh? Will these make the Babadook go away? I think so, but you have to promise me not to mention it again. I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Then I won't mention it. I promise to protect you. Come on. So like the entire time you're watching the shit like go on, you're like, she's breaking the fucking promise. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just like, what the fuck? But then of course there's that moment at the end where she, he caresses her face and they become like one again. They become that moment of, wait, I do need to protect my son. And I do want to say, I really, really do love this movie. And it's like stuff like that is why. I vibe with what you said too, because it also talks to this thing that like you just made me think about right now of how much, the older, like an older generation feels the obligation to protect the younger, whether it is a baby or whether it is an 18 year old, a 21 year old, what, whatever it is. But we forget that the sense of family and the sense of older protector is made up. Right. And we have to learn from them as well because they're less conditioned than us. They're less traumatized. They're less you know, they've been through the, they, they, they see life for life. They're the most present creatures, like younger people. They don't got a job. They don't got, you know, like 
the words of a six-year-old sometimes sound so pure because you're like, damn, I can't see life that simple anymore. Mm. So that's what I loved when he was like, yo, I got you if you got me. And he was like, you got to get me physically and also protect your own self mentally. But then he was like, I got you with my purity. I got you. And that's so cool to me. There's that moment where towards the end where it, it appears that they defeated the Babadook. And then right before they like hit upstairs, he's like, oh, he's not done. And he like, it, it kind of looks funny because a little child, but he gets like literally thrown across the room. Yeah, like, it's because yeah. she still has yet to finally admit it, the, the father had died on the same day that they're on the way to the hospital. That's the, that's the big thing. But it was that last moment. Then she finally was like, all right, fine, enough. And she screams and like while she's holding her son. And it's really beautiful that mm-hmm. that culmination. Also kind of going off of that, though, like it, it's a trope in horror movies to have the kid be like the demon, to have the kid be the one that's evil. And I like what yeah. you said earlier, because I truly do believe the kids are some of the smartest human beings. We should learn a lot more from kids if we just truly really get super present. Right. And I think that's what's so true about this movie is that it sounds like it's the kid telling the story of a Baba Duke, but really he's like, no, you have to face this. Like, and she's more of the, the demonic possessed role in this movie, which is a really cool, like twist of the trope. Yeah. That trope, that trope is, is so interesting because like, I feel like the world doesn't understand that those tropes, just like the rom-com trope, they glorify that. Mm-hmm. Like the rom-com trope has glorified the toxic relationship and the horror trope has glorified the demon kid. Mm-hmm. And it's like that kid is only a demon because you made him into one. You made that kid into that. They don't ever touch it on too much, but like even like the little kid ghosts. So it's because someone did something to them. They become demons because they're so pure. So they get like radicalized in anger and in death. I was just pure and then you ruined me. So now I'm going to haunt you through for this whole movie. I think that's the thing that this movie doesn't get enough credit for is that there are these people out there in the world that like this mother really think about their child this way of, I don't think I like this kid. Like really honestly, like there are people out there that are like this. And I think it's so cool of this movie just to face that up front. Like, this is actually what the mom's problem is, the whole movie. It's nothing fictional. It's literally that. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we project so much onto onto our younger generations and and especially our kids. If you don't deal with something, it then becomes theirs. That's what the Babadook showed, right? Because it would not just haunt the the kid. It haunted the mother. And it came from the mother. Those are the type of things that, like, give um, the middle kid syndrome. Yeah. And this different things is because like, we don't realize like p- parenting is the hardest job in the world. Mm-hmm. Done. Like there's no harder job than it. You raise a human or you fuck up and you raise someone that causes harm to everything around them. Exactly. Take care of your people, folks. That, that, that's actually the message of this movie is take care of your people. Yeah. Whatever your family may be, you know, make sure they're good. Make sure you're not doing anything negligent to them. Take care of you, take care of your people. Right, right. If she didn't accept it for her, it would have never not left him. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you noticed, but like when it's shot, is like a lot of like the creepier scenes are literally just her looking off into like a mirror. I think that's what's really good about the movie is that the actual scary parts are just her just looking at nothing. And I think that kind of plays into it of... Well, because middle-aged, like middle-aged white women are scary, yo. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, that's actually really funny that you say that. I went yeah. to go visit a friend in San Francisco and literally walked into like some random neighborhood and it was so Stepford Wives, man. I go, nah, you can keep on walking, but I'm out of here. Like, I'm not here. It's scary, yo. <laughs> Middle age, like European white is kind of scary because you could tell that they're not old, but they're aging. And they're like very pure, blue eyes, blonde hair, very pale skin. And you're like, oh, shit, some shit's going on. <laughs> so, Luis, I want to ask you, what are a couple of your favorite scenes in the movie? Or what are the ones that you go back to? My, my favorite, favorite scene is the end. Because the, the mother hands the food to, to the Babadook, which is living in the basement. He's not confined. There's no bars. There's no cage. There's no nothing. There's just a dark corner and that's where he's at. And he's smaller. He's still got creepy hands. I'm sure he still looks the same. And because like I said before, like the kid knew about him too down there. And then one of my other favorite scenes is a very subtle scene that only after post analysis and watching other videos did I realize it. But when she has the birthday for, for him, they never, she says something where like, he never has had a birthday without someone, without sharing it. And at the end of that, it shows you how unwilling she is to celebrate his life. Right. Because she don't want to do it alone. She has to have someone else so she can be like, yeah, let me be happy about this. Are you having a party? It's Sam's birthday today. My first birthday I've ever celebrated. That's not true. Yes, it is. My first party on the day. That's unusual. My husband died the day that Sam was born. He got killed driving Mum to the hospital to have me. Sam's just like his dad was. Always speaks his mind. Well, parties are lots of fun, especially when they're yours. My cousin's not coming because I broke her nose in two places. And then one of my favourite scenes is when she finally admits that she blamed herself manifested into the, the son for the uh, death of her husband. I'm sorry. I understand you're scared. I haven't been good since your dad died. I haven't been good at all. I'm sick, Sam. I need help. It's all beautiful stuff, and I think the movie t definitely takes its time to make sure those moments pay off. I, mm -hmm. I want to go back to that scene about the birthday because, like you said, so they always shared the birthday with the cousin, or sorry, with the niece. So they yeah. were born not too far from each other, so they always shared the birthday. And then the kid's birthday happened to just be on the same day that the husband died. A moment that like really shook me, and I remember when the first time I saw it too. I think it was on Netflix, like way back when, and. It's when they show the husband in like this like haunting image and he's like, bring me the boy, bring me the boy. And then he just says, I think it's going to rain today. And she freaks the fuck out. You mean Samuel? You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. Stop calling him. I think it's going to rain. And that immediately keyed me in like, oh, that's his last words. That's probably like his last words or whatever. Like, I really love that moment because I, that is so true how just certain words or certain phrases can just trigger 
just a very crazy reaction out of people because it, it is that moment of just fear and that dark place. Yeah. I want to shout out how in horror movies, dogs know what's up. I think that's a good trope, actually. I think we need more of that. No, dogs know what's up in real life, too. Exactly. They're, they are the most spiritual, probably, of all the creatures. They, they are one with themselves. But They're the most instinctual. But I do, I like Bugsy the dog. It's a cute dog for one. But I, I think the, the stuff with Bugsy the dog is of it, like, hold on, I need to protect the sun. That kind of yeah. shows exactly what's going on. Raising a dog, you have to know that it will only be reactionary if you are reactionary to it. And I, I think that's like kind of showing the dog. Because in the beginning, it's just, oh, it's a very peaceful dog. It doesn't do anything. But then towards the middle and the end, it's like, no, this lady's tripping, dude. I think that's a good tell of that character as well. The mom, Amelia that she is starting to lose some some hinges yeah yeah the the dogs especially in the scary movies or like the thriller movies they'll they'll like know who the low-key killer is or something like they that trope is always is always good i wanted to also shout out the possession scene i guess where sam has like tied the mom down and he's like trying to get the babadook out of him don't love me. The Babadook won't let you. But I love you, Mum. Yeah. Just, he just screams as loud as possible. You gotta get it! You have to get it out! Like, <laughs> that scene also rings so true. I wonder what that actor's doing now, because he gotta be older now, right? He gotta be like... Yeah, that movie came out in 2014, so... And he was a young kid then. He was young, but man... You know, you could tell, like, he actually screams like that. You know what I mean? Like, that looked like a very natural, crazy, annoying white kid scream. And I was like, yo, we need to lock this dude in the closet. Because I was like, I get what it's doing for the scene, but this is triggering me. And I'm like, stop fucking screaming. (laughs) I love that you mentioned that it woke your spirituality in it. Because this is a kind of movie where you watch it. And I think a lot of people have different takeaways. I think like someone can watch this and be like, Oh, the Baba Duke's a monster. And they just put it away. I think they actually can watch oh, yeah. it and totally miss that point. But I think that that's a great reason why we do the show. Like, obviously you have such a connection to it. It obviously touched you in a way when you didn't think it would. Yeah. It, it, it sparked my, um, my spiritual journey, but specifically it sparked my awareness for my want for awareness of my traumas and my demons and owning them. And then that turned me on to spiritual and mindfulness, Buddhist practices, uh, things that like, you know, random white men have written about of uh, like Asian practices and Hinduism and stuff. So then that sort of stuff, like that put more context to it around that. But yeah, it was the awareness stuff that that's what it really, it really sparked because nothing would have stopped if she didn't finally admit and then just be aware of it. And there's that there's that part of the movie where she starts like literally going so far as to go into the doctor and be like, give me sleeping pills. This kid doesn't shut the fuck up. I need to like take it that far. And mm-hmm. I think that's also like, yeah, like I said, that's what I like about this movie. It really puts it into a realistic perspective because there are parents who are just like, my kid has ADHD. I'm just going to give him hella meds and then call it good. Well, meanwhile, not really checking in with the kid like, hey, are you really good? Like, is this affecting yeah. you in kind of way? Or, or my kid has ADHD and has like severe learning disabilities. Now I need anxiety medicine because of my child. It has triggered anxiety in me. And it's like, no, you've always had anxiety. It's not your child's fault that you have anxiety. Your child is the way they are. 
you just gotta, you know, you gotta let it in, folks. I, I think that that that's the main message of Baba Duke. I think the Baba Duke, like I said, it's not even that it's a scary movie. It's just a really like revealing movie, really revealing movie for whoever watches it because they kind of have that moment where they dive back in. And I think I don't know if you ever seen the movie Hereditary, but Hereditary kind of scratches that itch as well of family drama. Okay, well, listen, I like yeah. I'm gonna be honest. That movie fucked me up. Like, <laughs> fucked me up. That movie is scary, but very dramatic I watch it. yeah but like i said like the, the way this movie does the hereditary does the same thing of just not so much that it's showing you scary shit is that showing you raw emotion showing you like pure fear and terror of these people of the things going on in their life and that's what you want out of a horror movie you want more of that i think yeah i mean that's what horror movies were supposed to be like you know they were supposed to put a figure to our fears a explanation to our troubles and then they exaggerate it the one thing that i do like about sam the child is that he's a magician he does like a lot of magic tricks that's the thing throughout the whole thing forgot about that yeah magic is actually kind of like a big part of like he's constantly watching a television show with a magician and that that's what he kind of tries to do and i think the movie definitely plays into that of the babadook is not well not that the Babadook's not magic, but we're doing magic tricks with the Babadook. We're doing like Genjutsu. Like, I'm not even fucking around. We're literally doing Genjutsu. Yes! Bro, Naruto in it. I love Naruto. I I like more of the environmental stuff they do because like I said, it does take place in the house. It does only really go outside just here and there. And Mm -hmm. it's so muted in tone. Like, the movie kind of looks gray like the entire time, up until the end. The entire time. Right. And I, th- I think that does so much work for the movie itself. It really sets you in that mindset of there's something going on before you can even get to what's going on. Yeah, the director or the writer's short film, I found out, was called The Monster. And it was in black and white. And it was essentially the monster part of the Babadook without like showing the rest of the psychological. Well, Luis, do you have any last words about the Babadook for the people? Watch it and find out what demons it brings up in you yeah i think people should watch more art because art is expression and those are the people that understand humans in the most severe way because they are going to portray the dark stuff they like we were talking about comedy we're analysts and we are going to sell it like it is but that's kind of what you need to see in the art that's what you want to see in the art you don't want to see the fake stuff you want to see the real stuff and i think If you are an artist, watch The Babadook because you should see what it's like to take a risk and get the reward from it just for literally taking that risk. But also Mm -hmm. to see, yeah, to see where it takes you. Because like I said, I think many people have different interpretations of the movie. And also, you've heard us talk about it. Do like a grounding exercise before you watch The Babadook because you're probably going to expect like a mind-blowing performance. Try and rid yourself of that because then it's going to be a disappointment either way. Exactly yourself of that ground yourself just watch it see what comes in authentically don't try and pull nothing out of it because obviously you've heard us talk about it but i would definitely recommend to watch it because it, it's good it's a breezy run it's only an hour 35 that's breezy yeah that's hour light. 35 <laughs> that's light work you got an hour 35 you've been <laughs> for five hours before we know it folks once again please check out the venmo at b-l-a-c-u M-M-U-N-I-T-Y. B-L-A community. Please help them out, folks. I got to say, they have educated me so much and stuff. And to see them out in the streets, I really know that the the struggle they go through. And I really hope that people help them out as much as possible. So I want to see, you know, 
I want to see these people win. I want to see these people win because they, they're trying to make others win. So definitely check it out. Yes. I know that even if you can't donate or even if you're in a, in a difficult time, you could always ask yourself, like, how can I contribute to my block? Wherever you live, like it doesn't even need to be time. Doesn't need to be volunteering. Like everyone, everyone thinks that it needs to be like volunteering at a soup kitchen or like I have to eat up a whole morning. No, like you could literally buy a broom, a cheap one. And every couple of weeks you do a little street cleaning for your own street. Yeah. Making it a little bit cleaner, adding to a, 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 an environment that feels safer. You can do so many things, but we can't just be living in this world without contributing to it. Be a community member in your community. That's what I know. Exactly. Please, please do check out Luis. You can check him out at L-U-I-S-G-A-L-I-L-E-I. <laughs> I get it? <laughs> yeah, E-I, yes, yes. Got it. And yeah, he's got a lot of funny stuff going on. Oh, we didn't, we didn't even scratch about you heard news. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, please. I, I think this is just a funny thing because y- y'all tell the news like it is. <laughs> we Yeah, we can do it real quick. One of the creative projects that I had this year was with me and three of my comedian friends, Julio Diaz, Talent Harris, and Jared Harvin. We were like, you know, we, we, we all have the dream of getting on the daily shows and writing for these beautiful things. But like, honestly, like, I don't think much of them are that funny. And I don't think they tell the news how it is. Even like a little bit abolitionist or progressive centered, just got together and we were like, you know what? We're going to film in a studio that I know. We're going to do a, a, a green screen in the back. We're going to make it look like an office space. And we're just going to tell the quick news. Different people on the show would talk about rap, uh, rap news, sports news. I would always talk about like the political news or like entertainment news. Migrant facilities for children on the border have now reopened under the Biden administration. And just when leftist liberals thought that Biden would eliminate racism and oppression, gotcha, you pinky toe brainwashed funguses. It's the same thing as the KFC kernel. It may be a new face, but it's the same old greasy, sloppy, 11 herbs and systemically racist, crispy or original recipe. It's a little show on my IGTV. We haven't done it in a little bit just because of different schedules but it'll be back soon. It's, it's a funny half real, half satire move. We say the real headline and then we have comments come in from anonymous sources that are definitely how the world is feeling, but no one on an interview would say. We call the politicians out on their bullshit and it's a fun time. It's, it's amazing. Please check it out, folks. You know, that's, that's the beauty of this comedy world we live in. You can check them out on Instagram and you can check them out in person. Don't forget, give me a break yep. comedy. Where's that at again? Give me a break comedy show is every Wednesday, 8.30 at the Bowery Electric. That's 327 Bowery in the East Village in Manhattan. Beautiful stuff. Luis, any last word for the people? Abolition is liberation and, and try and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Definitely laugh, folks. Well, folks, it was a pleasure interviewing Luis. We'll be back again next week. Please check us out. Every Friday, you know where we're at. Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud. You know the fucking vibes. That's all I got to say. All right, peace out. Know the fucking vibes. Peace.
It's Babadook time. Also, by the way, I watched this movie at like 5 a.m. this morning. Probably a bad idea. Oh, really? It slaps still. It still slaps. It still slaps. It still slaps, <laughs> yo, that motherfucking movie. Uh, uh. 